We're going to be in 1 Samuel 17, if you want to open your Bibles there. And we will continue in our study through the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And the title of this message is Facing Giants, and this is part two of the message that I began last week. And we are looking at one of probably the most famous stories in all the Bible. We are looking at the encounter between David and Goliath. And this is rich with application for us. There's a lot for us to learn. Uh, And we, just the foundational premise is that, you know what, giants are real and we all face them. We dealt with that last week. And, and, And you know, those of you that, that are confronting giants today, those of you that have confronted giants in your past, which pretty much covers everybody, you know experientially that giants are real. Uh, anyone who's ever struggled with addiction or bankruptcy or has lost a job or who has had difficulty with their finances or has had a prodigal child or has dealt with depression or, or whatever, we could spend the rest of the day just filling in the blanks. Anybody who has dealt with these things knows for a fact that giants are very real. And we all face them, and again, two types of giants, the giant that you're facing today or the giant that you're going to face tomorrow, right? And, and they're all real. They're very, very real. We all deal with them. And what we did last week is we looked at the main account of, of David and Goliath, and we extrapolated four lessons, four lessons from the text that, um, that we uh, can apply and go, okay, well, how does this apply to me? What's the situation here? First thing we saw is that we all must face our giants, Every single one of us must face our giants, which which sounds pretty straightforward, but the fact is not everybody does. Some people bury their head in the sand. Some people, you know, their response to a giant is, 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 you know, find a happy place, find a happy place, find a happy place, you know, kind of thing. And so we have to face our giants. Um, And many people don't, and the primary reason is fear, which brought us to our second point, that we must not fear our giants, Uh, Again, many people do, and that's because that's the enemy's primary tactic. He wants you to be afraid, to be very, very uh, afraid. And so whether it's Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, or if it's Abram and Sarai in Genesis chapter 12, the enemy's tactic is to get you to be afraid. Because if he can get you to be afraid and not engage him in the battle, just as Saul and his army was not engaging Goliath for 40 days, they were quaking in their boots and they wouldn't engage in the fight. Well, if the enemy can get you to give up before you ever fight, then he's won the battle. And so this is his primary tactic. And even if you, you know, fearfully engage in the fight, well, if he's got you on your heels to start with, to where you're fighting in a timid fashion, well, he's decidedly got the upper hand. And so we saw that we must not fear our giants as many do. Uh, additionally, we saw not only that we must face our giants and not fear our giants, we also saw that we must focus on God to defeat our giants. A lot of people, they focus on Goliath. They focus on the giant. They don't focus on their God. And this is exactly what the Israelites were doing. They were focused on Goliath. They majored in Goliath. They had their compass set to Goliath, and he was all that they saw. But David had his compass set on God. And while everyone was saying, you know, you, you, you can't do this, you can't defeat the giant, he's been a fighting man from his youth, and you're, you're just a punk kid. And David would say, oh, the Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will deliver me from this giant. The Lord 
is the one who's going to be faithful. This guy is going to be, he's, he's up against the Lord. He's not up against me. Which, by the way, this is the big overarching big E on the I chart where this is concerned. It's all about God. It's not about, it's not about David in the least. And with you and your giant, it's all about God. It's not about the giant that you're facing. Well, fourthly, we saw that we have to fight our giants. Yes, we have to, you know, put trust in the Lord. And yes, we have to, you know, we have to face the giant in faith, not out of fear and, and all of this. And yes, the battle belongs to the Lord and he's going to do it. But at a certain point, we have to put feet on our faith. And we actually have to engage in the fight. And so these are the things we looked at last week. Today, the big idea is pressing the attack. After we faced our giant, after we fought the battle, it's time now to press the attack and fight the ongoing battle. And so that's the big idea of our message today. And we pick it up where we left off, verse 51 of chapter 17, where we read, Therefore... David ran. Now, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, because David sunk a rock into the skull of the giant. Therefore, because David just planted that stone deep into that giant's forehead. Therefore, David ran and he stood over the Philistine. He took his sword, meaning the giant's, Goliath's sword, and drew it out of its sheath. And he killed him, and he cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now, this is horror film 101, okay? This is horror movie 101. You watch a horror movie, and the guy knocks out the bad guy. And then he turns around, and he puts his back to the bad guy, and he's like, And what, what are those, every one of us, you know, he's obviously never seen a horror movie. And what are the rest of us doing? We're shouting at the screen. We're shouting at the TV. We're like, he's not dead. Turn around. Turn around. He's going to get up. He's going to get you for crying out loud, you know? The horror film 101, man. Have you never watched a horror film? He's going to, oh, he just got you, knucklehead. What are you thinking about? See, that's the thing, man. We have to understand when we're facing our giant and when, you know, we knock him down, the the first thing we got to understand out the gate, man, is that the enemy, he's a bad dude and, and, and he's never dead. You know, it's like, what about Bob? He's not gone. He's never gone. You see, you know, here he is. And this is what we got to understand. The enemy in your life, the giant in your life, he's Freddy Krueger, man. And he's got nine lives. He just keeps coming back. The enemy is a multi-headed snake. You need to understand that. Now listen, Paul said this to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. He said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And what I want you to see in that verse is the plural language that is used. There is principalities, plural, powers, plural, rulers, plural, hosts, plural. What's the point? Our enemy is legion. Man, and the thing is, is that when we fight, we have to anticipate that our battles, when we win them, even when we win them, there are more battles behind them. The enemy is a multi-headed snake. You have to be horror movie savvy in your spiritual warfare. Now, why am I stressing this? Well, here's my first point. Write it down. The enemy will flee, right? The enemy will flee, okay? 
Well, we're deceived by that. Let's, you know, you see right there, verse 51. It says, therefore David ran, he stood over the Philistine, he took his sword, he drew it out of its sheath, killed him, he cut off his head with it, and when the, enemy, the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Okay? Sounds like a good thing. Well, it is. You got him on the run. Now, if you'll remember, Goliath promised that if he lost, the Philistines would surrender. Right? He promised that the, that the, the Philistines would surrender. He's a liar. He is a liar. Now, it is true, when you fight the enemy, that, that he'll leave. As a matter of fact, what comes to my mind is Isaiah 33, 3. Great scripture. Isaiah said this. He said, the enemy runs at the sound of your voice. When you stand up, the nations flee. We sing a worship song here. It's similar to that. The enemy has to leave at the sound of your name. And man, it is true, right? Goliath promises. He's like, hey, look, I'll tell you what. Here's the deal. You know, send a man to fight me, and, it, and if I win, then, then, we, then we get to rule over you. But you know what? If he wins, if he prevails against me, then you guys will rule over us. He's a big, fat liar. That, that, that right there is just flat out not true. Why? Well, because they killed Goliath, and what do they do? They flee. They run away. Now, when they run away, what are they doing? Here's what they're doing. They are falling back in order to regroup so that they can attack again. Again, you want to talk about, you know, simple things, 101 things. This is battle warfare 101. When you retreat, you're not retreating to give up. You're retreating to regroup so that you can go back and attack the enemy in in more numbers or in a different way or whatever the case may be. This is exactly what the enemy is doing here and is exactly what he does in your life. You defeat a giant, the enemy retreats, and what do we do oftentimes at that point? We take our foot off the gas, man. We're like, like the guy, you know, Freddy Krueger. It's like, oh, gosh, good. Thankfully, I killed him. And, you know, God's yelling at the screen of our life going, turn around, turn around, turn around. He isn't dead. And we have to be aware of this, man. Now, we have examples of this basic battle tendency of the enemy, that he retreats and regroups and comes back again, we, we have examples in Scripture. The best example I can think about is Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus in the wilderness, he, he goes into the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, he's tempted in the wilderness, okay? And, and as he's tempted in the wilderness, Jesus resists every single temptation, refuting the enemy's attack with the word of God. There's lots there, a whole nother message to preach, but just know that the enemy attacks and Jesus repels the attack by the word of God, just as you and I are supposed to repel the attack of the enemy by the word of God. Now, as he repels this attack, eventually we read Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, throw it on the screen for you. It says, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, okay, what we need to understand, the devil's not done with his attack. As a matter of fact, you read the same story, the same account out of Luke's gospel. Luke gives us a little bit more information. Luke 4.13. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. Here it is. Until an opportune time. The enemy fell back. He regrouped. And what was his opportune time? Judas Iscariot was his, opposite, was his opportune time where he tempted Judas to betray Jesus. Now, even in that, God is 
large and in charge. The Bible promises that in all things, God works together for good to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. So God takes what the enemy, just like David took the enemy's sword and hacked his head off with his own sword, God, he uses the enemy's devices against the enemy all the time. Think about Haman, right? This, this big enemy of the Jews builds a gallows 100 feet tall, and what happens? He himself gets hung on the own gallows that he built you know, to, to kill Mordecai. And so we see God using the enemy's wiles and tactics again. I mean, so this is the idea is that the enemy attacking Jesus, Jesus repelling the enemy, the enemy retreating, him coming back at an opportune time, even God using that together for good. But we have to understand this is how the, the, the enemy works in our life. When the enemy flees, here's the point. When the enemy flees, it's not the time to take a break it's the time to press the attack. It's time to press the attack, okay? Now, why am I beating on this drum? Well, because we see this all the time. As a pastor, I see this all the time. I'll have someone, they'll come in they, as a family. They'll come into the church, and, and man, God will meet them here in a profound way. They'll have major breakthrough. Things will go phenomenally well. They, they will begin to have victory in their life. They'll begin to, you know, have some overcoming against this, this giant that they've been facing. Whatever it is, they begin to grow. Maybe they begin to start attending a growth group. Maybe they put their kids into Awana. They start stringing victories together, one after another. They start growing. And pretty soon, what happens in their life is they go, eh, you know what? I'm going to take my foot off the gas a little bit here. I, I, I think we're good, man. I think I got that giant slayed. And so then what will happen is they start slacking off. They're not going to growth group as much anymore. Maybe they, they, they stop attending church regularly. And what happens? They are shocked and dismayed when they may, wake up one day and they find that the enemy has regrouped and he's, and he's countered his attack. And now all of a sudden where they were having such victory, now they're living in profound defeat. Now, listen, here's the deal, and I'll start by raising my own hand for the question that I'm about to ask, just to free up. But let's be honest. How many of you have had that experience? Have had that, yeah. See, we have an experience where, man, I got my foot on the gas. I got victory. I've slayed a giant. I'm moving forward. God, you're doing a great work in my life. And then I get to the place where, you know what? I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna coast a little bit here. And then all of a sudden, the enemy regroups. Man, we have to press the attack. We have to keep moving. We have to keep fighting. When the enemy flees, it's time to press the attack. I put that on the screen for you because you need to write it down. Man, when you got him on the run, you have to keep him on the run. You have to keep fighting. You have to keep pressing. Now, another point that we see here, another lesson in the fighting of the ongoing battle. It's not just that the enemy will flee and all that's implied with that, and we have to keep our foot on the gas. But the second thing we need to notice is that people will follow. People will follow. Verse 52. Now, the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted, and they pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharem, even as far as Gath and Ekron, 
Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents and David took the head of the Philistine and he brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now, what we see here, listen, for better or for worse, we influence the people around us in our lives. For better or for worse, we influence those people around us. It's been said that leadership is influence, and every single one of us has a measure of influence in some way, shape, or form. There are people in your life, people around you, people that you influence, and we can either influence them for good, or we can influence them for evil. Take a look at Miley Cyrus. Here's a chick, through her wrecking ball, influencing people for evil, Right? And so the thing is, we have to understand that we influence the people around us. It's been said you're writing the gospel a chapter each day by the things that you do and the words that you say. And people read what you write, whether it's faithless or true. Hey, Christian, what's the gospel according to you? Because you live out and you're going to influence the people around you. And here's what you need to understand. Throughout the New Testament, the Bible emphasizes over and over that it is our Christian duty to set an example to those who are outside. The Bible makes it clear, could not make it any more clear. Jesus, washing his disciples' feet in John 13, he said to them, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus, again, speaking to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, said, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. The apostle Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, said this. He said that they should follow his example. He said again to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, he goes, look, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is his words. And so over and over again, we see this exhortation that we are to live very publicly, and yet we live in an age that embraces and celebrates and really worships privacy. Do we not? Absolutely, we do. We have privacy laws. We have privacy settings, right? Everybody covets privacy. As a matter of fact, we covet privacy so much, we even murder for privacy. You're like, what do you mean? Well, check out the, the, the legal definition of abortion sometime. If you go look at, at abortion and the legal pillar on which it stands, the legal pillar that it stands in the Supreme Court re- ruling is that it's a privacy right. This is what they hinge the whole thing on. You, as a woman, can kill your unborn baby because you have a right to privacy. That's what the Supreme Court has their ruling anchored to. And, and you see this, if you, if you take the time to really consider our lust for privacy and, and how it drives so much of what we do, you see inherently the work of Satan because it's Satan that wants you to isolate so that he can infiltrate, right? And, and so this is what the enemy wants you to do. Just take a look right now. There's all kinds of privacy laws that are, gear, that are aimed to grab your children. They have it set right now to where your child can keep it absolutely secret from you. If they get abortion, they can be a, they can be a child. If they can 15, 14, 16-year-old gal can get pregnant, she can go get an abortion and she can keep it a secret from you and everybody will help her to do this legally because that's 
her legal right according to the law of the land because we so value privacy. Somebody just posting the other day on, on, a, on a, you know, Temecula talk, talking about how their 13-year-old uh, had access and had to answer to these questions for the insurance company, and the insurance company would not allow the parent to have anything to do with it. They've, they've engineered it this way. So that, you know, what? Privacy, man. This is the thing that we worship. This is the thing we hold to. But the Bible says repeatedly that you and I are to live publicly. We're to live publicly. Listen, Paul said this to the, to the Philippians. He said, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. I got to tell you, when I study the scriptures for the preparation for a message, I have to be very careful that what I'm studying, the first thing I'm doing is I'm, say, is I'm searching my heart. The word of God is a mirror, and, it, and, and it, you're, seeing, you're supposed to see your reflection in the mirror, you know? This is God's standard, this is the compass, this is where, well, I'm way off, you know? And that's, that's the primary way that we need to approach the Bible. So often we'll come to Sunday morning service, we'll listen to a message, and I might be, even be taking notes, but I'm thinking, well, Jane needs to hear this. Well, Joe needs to hear this, or whatever the case may be. No, you need to hear this. And so, so I'll come to the scriptures, and when I, when I study and prepare a message for you, I have to be asking the Lord, Lord, you've got to speak to me. And I'll tell you that in my personal study time, in my preparation, this is the section of the study that hit me right between the eyes. This needfulness to live a life publicly and not to, not to isolate so that you can keep things private. I'll just tell you, you know, it, it, sometimes it's difficult to, to, be, to live publicly. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're pastoring a church, a thousand people, or if you you know, have some sort of a, a, a even, you know, a, a, a job that's more quiet in nature and you have a very small circle of exposure to people. We all tick the same way. And, and it's difficult sometimes to be public. Why? Well, because you're opened up to ridicule, aren't you? The moment that you're living out your faith, you open yourself up to, 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 to every shot in the world, really. And so there is a natural tendency within us to want to isolate, to want to be able to say, mind your own business, to want to be able to say, hey, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know? That's the way we would like to live our lives. But the Bible, and this is, this is a worthwhile study, notice, just read through the New Testament with the mindset of, let me take note of every single time that the Bible exhorts me that I need to live publicly. I need to let my light so shine before men that they see my good works and glorify my Father in heaven. Listen, there is power in our witness. You need to know that there is power in our witness. You have no idea who's watching you. Pastor Gail Irwin tells the story of his first pastorate, you know, uh, and, you know, he's, he's an old grandpa now, but when he was first pastoring his first church, young 20-something-year-old kid, and he's, pa- and, and, and he's preaching the gospel, and the, the most notoriously wicked man in the whole town comes forward at his very first altar call. And, and gives his life to Christ. And, and, and this is, you know, Pastor Gail telling the story. He goes up to the guy. He's like, so uh, what I say that, uh, you know, really got to you? The guy's like, son, my wife has been married to me for 50 years. She's put up with all of my shenanigans. I've been a horrible husband. I've been a horrible man. 
hey, listen, no offense, but quite frankly, I just couldn't wait for you to shut up so I could give my life to the Lord. It was his wife's slow and steady and quiet and continued witness that caused that man to receive Jesus Christ and get saved. And you have no idea who's watching your life. This is a scary thought, mom and dad. Is it not? It's a scary thought to consider. Listen, your kids are watching you. They're watching your your life intently. And if you're living in defeat, you need to understand that your kids, they're not going to walk in victory. If you're living in defeat, your kids are not going to walk in victory. Now, that's a general truism. Certainly, there are exceptions to that. I have no doubt. Some of you here today, you, you, li- you had a parent who lived their life in defeat and apart from God. And sometimes people get saved, and they're the exception to the rule. And I'm not talking about the exception to the rule. I'm talking about the general truism. And the general truism is, is that more often than not, if you're a parent who lives his life in defeat spiritually, you're going to raise children who live their life in defeat spiritually. Why? Because our kids become us. They become us. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. And that's exactly what he did. Now, now here's what you've got to understand. Here in our text, every man in the valley of Elah is watching David live his life by faith very publicly. See, these were all men that were complete failures. These were men that for 40 days were shaken in their boots and would not engage the enemy. They were living defeated lives. What changed? What happened? Hey, listen, the people followed. They followed the example of David. They began now to step out in faith. They began to live victorious lives. Why? Because David didn't let anyone despise his youth, but he set an example. Are you setting an example? Because we need to understand that it's not just about facing Goliath. It's not just about fighting Goliath. It's not just about conquering Goliath. It's about continuing to move through and press through and go after conquering Goliath and continuing to press the battle. And you need to understand in so doing that people, people are watching. And if you'll be faithful to do that, then they will follow you. Now, not only are people watching you, but we'll also see that leaders are also watching you, which brings us to the third point about pressing the attack and fighting the ongoing battle. This is thirdly, you will gain favor with leaders when you press the attack. You will gain favor with leaders. Look at verse 55. It says, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. I don't have a clue. Verse 56, so the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. And then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took and he brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine still in his hand. I love that picture. Hey, the king wants to see you. Yeah, what can I do for you? What can I do for you, buddy? I mean, that's just a guy. Every man in here just goes, I love that guy. I love that guy. That right there, that is the coolest thing I read in a long time. And so this is how he comes before the king. He's, he is bad A, man. Hey, you know, what can I do for you, bro? And um, man, and, uh, and Saul said to him, verse 58, um, whose son are you, young man? And so David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. 
Now, when it, Saul asks him, he's like, whose son is this? Now, some people struggle with this because you'll remember previous to this what happened. God had removed his spirit from Saul, right? Because Saul had been disobedient and God had given his Holy Spirit to David. And God had sent a menacing spirit into Saul's life. And Saul was so tormented by this menacing spirit that the guys around Saul are like, we need to get this guy some relief. And they reasoned and purposed and connected the dots that his big problem was that the spirit of God had been removed from his life. So their solution was, well, let's find a guy who the spirit of God is upon and he happens to be a worship leader. Let's have him do worship in the king's presence and that will bring the king some sort of relief and so on. And so David was the guy and they brought David in to do this. And so some people read this and they read this account, and they're troubled by it. They're like, wait a minute, Saul doesn't recognize this this guy who's been coming and leading him in worship? And so scholars, biblical scholars, they try to make sense of this, and some, you know, speculate, well, maybe... In the, in the translation, maybe they put the text in the wrong place. Maybe this belongs earlier in the translation and they just maybe got this mixed up a little bit. Uh, and so the text there is misplaced. That's not the case, by the way, but some believe that that might be the case. Or sometimes some will speculate, well, you know what? Maybe his appearance has changed. You know, maybe, you know, he was, some time has transpired and he's grown up a little bit and so the king doesn't recognize him because, you know, he grew up, maybe changed his hairstyle, I don't know, whatever. You know, or maybe his appearance has changed because, you know, before, you know, he was just this sort of, you know, femsy kind of, you know, rocker kind of guy and uh, wearing skinny jeans and all. And now, you know, he just brought in, he just walked in with Goliath's head and I don't, re- who is this man? I don't recognize him. I remember the, you know, the skinny, skinny jeans dude that was playing guitar, you know, but I don't recognize, and it's none of those things right? Some people will say the reason he didn't recognize him is because when David would come and lead worship that he played behind a screen. And so Saul never really saw him. He was just there, you know, the opposite of kids. He was just there to be heard and not seen kind of thing. And, And all of these are untrue. And there's a very simple explanation as to why, you know, Saul was, was asking what he was asking. And, and here's what it is. He wanted to know who his, whose, whose son he was. It wasn't necessarily that Saul didn't recognize David. The situation is that Saul now wants to know David a little bit more. He's vetting the kid. You get it? You know, you have somebody that, hey, I need, you know, we're going to bring this guy in to play music. Okay, fine. You know, the vetting process isn't quite as significant, but now what has Saul promised? hey, this dude, whoever kills Goliath, he's going to marry my daughter. His family's going to be exempt from taxes. A couple of sweet perks, by the way. And so, you know, now this guy has done that. So when he's bringing this kid before him, he's thinking, well, if you're going to marry my daughter, I got to know who your dad is. I got to know who your family is. More than that, listen, you'll win favor with leaders. And that's what's transpired here, is that David has won favor with this leader. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. See, here's the deal. Leaders are always looking for faithful men. We are always looking for faithful men. Men, and it's not just a matter of, hey, I need a warm body. Hey, I need more people in children's ministry, which we do. But, and this is not a shameless plug, trust me. No, we're always looking for faithful men. Why? Because we have a biblical mandate 
to look for faithful men. Paul wrote this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We have a desperate need for faithful men. You know, from time to time I'll have people that come to me here at the church and they're seeking a position. They're desirous of some sort of a position in ministry. And, and what I always say to people is, look, the, if, the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 18, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. A man's gift makes room for him. So, so here's the deal. Just be faithful to exercise your gift. Jesus talking, you know, this, this parable, the parable of, of, of the talents, that this, this, this owner, he came to his servants and he gave them each talents. And he said, go out, be faithful to invest my money. A talent is a, is, is a unit of measure. It's actually a weight and that's the way that they would divide money. Okay, and so what happened was in this story that this guy, this, 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 this owner, this guy that had his own money, he's going away. He calls his servants and said, I'm going to give you a portion of my money. I'm going to give you a portion of my money. I'm going to give you a portion of my money. And I want you guys to invest this for me while I'm gone. I want you guys to put this to work. You have a, you have a stewardship responsibility. Steward manages something that's not his own for his master. And so these guys go out, Every, each one of them is given a different portion, a different level of talent, okay? And so it is with you and me. Each one of us have different talents. We have different duties. We have different responsibilities, okay? God has called me to plant and lead a church, all right? That's my responsibility. Now, the question is, what has God called you to do? Whatever he's called you to do, you have to be faithful to do it, all right? And, and so, and that's a big question. Are you being faithful with what God's called you to do? So, so for me as a leader, my responsibility is to look and to find those men and those women who are being faithful and continuing this parable of the talent. How does it work? Well, Jesus said that the, the, when the master called his stewards into, into an account, right, that one of them... Didn't, didn't do anything with his talent. He buried his talent. Well, what did Jesus say to that man? He said, depart from me, you wicked and lazy servant. And then he took that man's talent and he gave it to the one who had invested his talents. And Jesus basically said this. He said, whoever can be trusted with little can be trusted also with much. So for me as a leader, or for any leader, our responsibility is to find people who are faithful with the talents that God has given to them and entrust them with more duty and with more responsibility so that God's kingdom is grown, so that God's people are ministered to, so that we grow together as as a body. And this all is dependent upon every single one faithfully doing their part. And I want you to see how this connects To David, being faithful, he's faithful to go, he's faithful to serve, he's faithful to do that which God has called him to do, right? And what was that? Well, initially it was just tending his father's sheep, the lowliest, most insignificant, most most really vilified job that an Israelite could do. Out there in the field with the sheep. And yet David did it and he was faithful to it. And God showed up one day through the prophet Samuel and said, guess what? You've been faithful in little. 
Now I'm going to make you faithful and much. And he calls him to be the king of Israel. And now here he does, and he's just faithfully doing it. And even after he calls him to be the king of Israel, where does God leave him? In the field with his sheep. And then his dad's like, hey, you know what? Your brothers, they're out at the battle. Why don't you take some cheese to them and go see, you know, how they're doing? He's like, what a cheesy job, man. I got to be like, here I am. You know, and what's he do? He's faithful. He's just faithful in that which God calls him to. And now he goes there, and boom, God does this incredible work. He kills a giant. Next thing you know, he's standing before the king. You'll gain favor with leaders as you're faithful to serve the Lord. Well, the fourth point about pressing the attack and fighting an ongoing battle is that you will gain friends. You will gain friends. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, speaking of David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go to his father's house anymore. And then Jonathan, you know, he wouldn't let us go. He used to come and go. Remember when he was leading worship? You know, he'd go and he'd play worship for Saul for a little while. Saul would be chill. And then he'd go back and do what his, you know, dad needed him to do. Now Saul's like, dude, there, no more coming back and forth. I need you here. I need you all the time. You are, you're just too valuable to me, man. You stay close because I need you. That's, that's what we, we all aspire to be. We want to be that way for our Lord. Well, the Lord is like, look, I need you, man. Now, the Lord doesn't need any of us, right? He, we get to serve him, but you get the idea that we become so faithful. It just, it's a matter of, man, then here I am. So Saul says to him, look, you no know, going back and forth anymore. You're vital. You're important. You stay here. And then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and he gave it to David with his armor, even to the sword and his bow and his belt. All of his royal apparel gives to David. And so David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely and Saul set him over the men of war and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, We've met Jonathan already, okay? Jonathan is the son of Saul. We met him in 1 Samuel 14. And what we see about Jonathan is that Jonathan has a heart very much like David. Jonathan's there. The the Israelites, they're not engaging in battle. They're not going to war like they should. And and Jonathan's the guy who, who steps up and goes, this is baloney, man. Somebody ought to do something here, and it doesn't matter. He's like, what is it to the Lord to save by many or by few? So he says to his armor bearer, let's you and me go up against, you know, this garrison. Let's see what we can do. I mean, you know, it's nothing to God. He wants to, if he wants to whoop him with just two of us, he can totally do it. Great man of faith, and you remember the story. He goes up there, and they're victorious. Now, again, Jonathan, a lot like David. He's roughly the same age. They're both extremely bold men of action. They're, they're, they're both men of great faith in God, and most of all, they both had a real relationship with God, a transforming relationship with God. Now, what was it that knit their souls together? Well, notice that it happened after David had finished speaking to Saul. Now, if you look back again, chapter 17, those of you with electronic Bibles, you're hating me right now. Those of you with a real Bible, you're going, oh, that's easy, it's right there. Um, But if you look at the last verse of of chapter 17, 
It doesn't give us a whole lot. It basically says that Saul asked him, hey, whose son are you? And David responded, well, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And then we now go to chapter 18, verse 1, very next verse, and we read, when he had finished speaking with Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And I doubt very seriously that it was just because David said that one thing. Clearly, they had a much longer conversation. Right? It wasn't like, you know, Saul goes, hey, who, who, whose son are you? And I said, oh, you know what? Um, my dad, Ted Leavenworth. And I'm, I'm Ted Leavenworth. And he went, oh! And his soul was knit to him. It was like, oh, wow! Clearly they had a longer conversation. And I'll tell you the conversation they had, and I know it based on Jonathan's response. The conversation that they had was that David shared very boldly, look, here's my story. You know, my dad, he wanted me to tend the sheep. I faithfully did it. That's just what, what, you know, I was supposed to do. Next thing I know, Samuel shows up at my door, anoints me king of Israel. Okay? And, and so this is, this is what God did in my life. You know, king, sorry, this is just how it went down. Okay? So he's just sharing the story. And he says, now, look, I mean, here's the deal. Uh, I'm just waiting on God for that. I don't, I, you know, God spoke to my life. It's not like I got to go out and engineer this. It's not like I got to go make this happen. I just got to humbly serve Jesus and humbly serve the Lord and, and it'll be fine. So this is what I'm doing. So I've been tending sheep. The next thing I know, my dad asked me to bring this, this cheese down to the commanders. And when I came down, I saw Goliath and I don't know what to tell you, but all of a sudden the spirit of the Lord just came upon me and I knew that I had to take him out. And so I did. And Jonathan is sitting here listening to all this and it's resonating with him because they have the same heart. They have the same soul. They both tick that way. And Jonathan hears this and he's like, this is my guy. I mean, this, I, 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 it resonates in my heart. We're, we're, we're the same. David Guzik said this. He said, most people long for a true Deep friendships. But they give little heed to how they select their friends. Jonathan chose David for a friend because his words to Saul revealed his heart. In other words, Jonathan exercised the wisdom that Proverbs 12.26 speaks of when it says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. This is really critically important. I just ask you the question, who are your friends? How do you choose your friends? Here's a good question. Do your friends have godly character? Here's why that matters. It's been said that you are the sum total of your top five friends. In other words, you know, you just pick the five closest friends that you've got and, and, you know, supposedly you're peas in a pod. You're just like them. Which is a scary thought. I don't know if I fully buy off on it, but I'll tell you what, it's consistent with 1 Corinthians 15.33 that says, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. This is a critically important thing. Here you've got these two men, their hearts are knit together. And it says then Jonathan and David, they made a covenant. Now this word covenant, it, it, it basically, it's like a solemn oath. Okay, and, and the way that people would make a covenant is that they would take a cow and they would hack it in half, two, two pieces, and then they would, they would pass through the middle of it, between these two pieces. And the act of doing this was to say, look, we're going to make vows to one another, and if we break these vows, may we be just like this dead cow. 
Okay, that, that, that was the idea, kind of, kind of like, you know, an extreme deal, but that, that was the idea of what was going on. And, and what's going on here is that, you know, David sharing his calling, sharing his anointing, sharing that he is to be the future king. And what's happened in Jonathan's life is that it resonates as truth. He, he connects with him in such a way that he goes, this is the truth. I see it. I see the Spirit of God upon him. I see him go and fight Goliath. And nobody can explain that except by the Spirit of God. Now think about it. Who's Jonathan? He's the crown prince. He is the heir apparent. He's the one that should be king. His father's going to have this conversation with him in short order here. We're going to see this in the weeks to come where Saul's going to be talking to him and going, you're the gang. What are you talking about? Don't you worried about this guy? And see, that's the human response. Who, who else can you think about biblically that responded that way? Well, a situation that's similar to this is Joseph. Joseph, God gives him a dream and Joseph goes to his brother. He's like, hey, guess what? God gave me a dream. And I'm going to rule over you guys and you're all going to bow down to me. His brothers are like, you knucklehead. And they sell him into slavery. That's how good that one went over, right? And so here is really a similar situation, but it resonates. Jonathan is such a godly man, it resonates completely differently. Now, there are those, they hear this, and they hear about the love that Jonathan and David have, and they will, they will make the obscene you know, jump to say, you know what this is? This is a homosexual relationship. Jonathan and David, they, they had a homosexual relationship. I'll tell you, that's obscene for a couple of different reasons. First of all, it violates the clear teaching of Scripture. Ephesians 6, Leviticus 18, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, just to, just to name a few areas that talk about this. It violates that. And listen, David was the one who penned these words in, in Psalm 119, verse 61 and 63. He said, evil people try to drag me into sin, but I am firmly anchored to your instructions. I am a friend to anyone who fears you, anyone who obeys your commandments. Nobody can pen those words and be involved in a relationship that is such an affront to God and so clearly violates his commandments. So this is not a homosexual relationship. And so it's obscene for that reason, that suggestion that it is, but it's also obscene because let me tell you, and listen, I close on this point, but you got to hear it. What is going on here? You have to see why they have such a bond, why they have such a connection, and here's why. Because David so loved God more than himself, and he so loved God more than he loved the throne of Israel or anything else, that he would do whatever God told him to do. He was completely and totally God's man. He was, as the Bible describes, a man after God's own heart. Jonathan was so loving of God more than himself, so loving of God, more than he loved the throne and ascending to the throne as the crown prince that he would do whatever God told him to do. That's what knit their hearts together. And their friendship becomes so beautiful because they made a covenant. Jonathan saying to David, I see it. God's spirit is upon you. You are the future king. Take my robe. Take the armor. Take everything. It means nothing to me. All that means to me is that I'm obedient to God and that I recognize you as my king by the will of God.
And, and so Jonathan would give those over, and the covenant that David would make, because it was common in those days when a king would ascend to the throne, what would he do? He would kill the whole family of the, for, of the former king and everybody that had been in power. Why? Because he didn't want any threat to his throne. And we'll see this factor in in the chapters to come as well. That David, he's not going to go do that. He's not going to go kill Jonathan's family. Absolutely not. And that's David's commitment in this covenantal agreement. Hey, look, you're the king, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve you as king. David says, okay, I'm the king, and I'm not going to wipe out your family. And they make this covenant. Listen, you've heard the saying, with friends like this, who could use enemies? Listen, with friends like this in your life, what enemy can stand against you? We need friends like this. And so, listen, you need to understand how are you choosing your friends? You've got to take a walk with that. All right, we're closing right now. We close at this point. I want to give you just a, a, a preview next week and then, you know, time to come. Listen, there's more to look at when we press the attack. We have to press the attack. We have to keep moving forward. And you're, you're going to gain favor with friends and you're going to gave, gain fr- favor with rulers as we've looked at. But you're also going to gain fans and foes as you press forward with your attack. And that brings with it its, its unique dangers. And listen, our greatest victories often lead to our greatest trials. And David right here is going into his greatest trial. He's entering into a 10-year period of trial. There's two things I hate. When the Bible talks about trials and when it's associated with 10 years, right? And so David's going into 10 years of trial. But God's going to use it. It's all part of God's plan, and we need to see that because for us, oftentimes we're going to move forward and we're going to continue to press the enemy, and it is not all going to be puppy dogs and butterflies. We've got to understand that there will be trials in the, in the course of pressing on and fighting the enemy, but God's going to use those trials, and we need to hear that. That's what we're going to look at next week. But I want to leave you with three questions here as we close. Question number one. Take a walk with it this week. Are you pressing the attack? Are you pressing the attack? And the opposite of this would be turning your back on Freddy Krueger and going, Phew. well, he's out of the way. So are you pressing the attack? Second question, are you living your faith publicly? Am I, am I you know, trying to, to just tell everybody, hey, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Mind your own business. Leave me alone. My, are you living your life in such a way that it intensely seeks to be private? And why do we do that? Usually because we want to keep our little private sins. So are you living your life, your faith publicly? Third question, are you seeking godly friends? Really take a walk with who your friends are. And maybe some of you need some new friends. I don't know. Spirit of God does take a walk with that.